Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Talk yeah. singing, yeah. I'm great at that. You talk in r- rhythm. You just talk like, you know, That's 20 right. minutes ago, I am free, like a breeze, free <laughs> like a bird in the woodland wild, free like a gypsy, free like a child. I am unattached. It's, like, it's just that kind of, you know. So anyway, Trevor Nunn was directing Oklahoma on Broadway. It was the National Rush Theater. up your Shakespeare stars. Yeah, exactly. Yes, I'm great at that. Yeah. There you go. So you're great. Hi, I'm Asif Manvi, and I am an actor, a writer, a father, a son. But what I am not is Cal Penn. Hello and welcome, everybody. That's right. This is a brand new episode of Off the Beat, and I am your host, Brian Baumgartner. Today's guest. Well, he has been a staple of nightly television for close to a decade, and he was once almost arrested in a two-headed fish costume. I am talking, of course, about film, TV, and daily show icon, Asif Manvi. Now, Asif and I have a lot in common. We both wrote a book, we both love the theater, and we both might start breaking into song, (laughs) so... 
I loved every minute of diving into Asif's past and his start as an actor. He was a child born in India who moved to England and then to Florida. So Asif calls himself a human turducken. And it was fascinating for me to hear how his childhood as an immigrant became later rich material for his career. We even hear a few insider secrets about what's really going on at Walt Disney World. Intrigued? I am. You're not going to want to miss this one. Asif Manvi, everyone. Bubble and squeak. I love it. Bubble and squeak, I know. Bubble and squeak, I cook it every morning Left over from the night before Hello, Asif, how are you? How are you? I'm doing well, how are you? Good. I don't think we've ever met before. I don't think we've ever met either, which is weird because I find you so funny oh, and delightful. Thanks. And and we have well, I know I'm just kissing your ass right now, but I understand though. A lot of people kiss my ass. Yeah. No, uh, no, I that's great. I I likewise I you know I feel like when they I didn't realize it was you when they originally oh. told me about this podcast, and then I and then I uh, googled it, and then I was like, oh wait, that's so great. The, you know, like, it's so weird in this business. Like, you think that we would run into each other at some point, but, you know. Yes, I know. I'm sure I saw you, like, across the Emmys three or four times, but no one was nice enough to introduce us, I'm guessing. Well, and we've worked with so many of the same people, too. That's Yeah, that's true. So this is fun. You've been doing, you're doing this podcast. I'm doing this podcast. I'm talking to people that I like about their life and about the sort of unexpected moments that take our careers or your career on on different trajectories. I think it's fascinating in this business how, well, I mean, we'll talk about you. For, first of all, you, you born in India, and then you moved to England yeah. very early, and then eventually to the United States. How was that for you to uh, grow up kind of in, in so many different places? Well, it's, it, it, you know, I often have described myself as a human turducken, okay. which is, so you know what a turducken is? It's like a, a duck yes, it's stuffed it's inside like the, a chicken. The turkey inside with a turkey the chicken. And the duck. Right. Yeah. So I've often described myself that way because I feel like there's like an Indian baby with an English schoolboy wrapped in an American adult. That's kind of what yes. I feel like sometimes, you know, like, so I was born in India and of course, that was, you know, I don't have any really memory of that, but, you know, grew up in an Indian, South, you know, Indian family with that cultural piece and that heritage and that thing. And then grew up as a, in the north of England, sort of like this little English public school kid. So my childhood and all of my formative years and like all the TV shows I watched between like five and 16 were all like English shows and I was a little British boy and then came to America and of all places moved to Tampa, Florida, which is as America as you can get really, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> it, it is, I've been to Tampa. I know exactly yeah, what you mean. Right. Yes. So it's like, I come from like the North of England, like a coal mining textile wool factory, dirty sort of the sky is gray all the time, even in summer town. 
and moved from there to Florida, which is just like a, right. it's not even like Miami. It's like, you know, it, it doesn't even have like a, a, yeah. a, a flor a culture of its own, you know, like a, whatever that is, but it's Tampa. I'd never even heard of it before, you know. But before Tampa, why the why a cold mining English town? Was this your parents' dream or work or what? How did you end up there? My dad was a coal miner. He was uh, <laughs> okay. No, no, he wasn't. He wasn't. No, a coal he wasn't. Miner. <laughs> he was. uh, my dad's <laughs> dream was to go down the coal mine, and and no, it was uh, he wanted to. He was like a little Indian boy. He was like one day I will work in a coal mine. <laughs> 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 that's a great little short film <laughs> like, yes, uh, yes. I'll just sell that idea to Netflix <laughs> like, like, okay he, there you go he's, he's an Indian kid grew up in Bombay but his dream was to be a coal miner <laughs> so, in the north of England in the north of England no doubt yeah no my dad got a, a job at Bradford University of all places because he was a color chemist at the time, which was a thing at the time. Okay. This was in the late sixties. And, and so he, you know, it was like moving to England, better life, you know, all that stuff. Right. I don't think my parents realized they didn't do much recent. Like there was no Google. They didn't like Google Bradford back then and, and go, what, what's, what's the, uh, what's the weather like there? You know? So they show up in this like <laughs> cold, wintry northern english town yeah and uh and that's where i was uh, i raised but but also it happens that bradford also has a very large and i think even today has a very large indian pakistani population for some reason oh so really it's one of those cities oh. it's, it's a city that has a lot of there was a precedent to it okay it wasn't quite as random as it seems to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, it, it wasn't so random. It was like there was there was a lot of people who looked like us in Bradford, and also Bradford subsequently suffered some of the worst racial riots and stuff in the history of the country. Later, years later, you know, um, yeah, it's it's an interesting interesting place. It was a it was a kind of a lightning rod for a lot of political immigrant sort of stuff you know, that, that got stirred up by the various political parties in, in the UK. Interesting. Do you, do you feel like some of your work later on where you were, were examining some of the, what did that come from there? Do you think, or was that more the United States? No, I think that was more here. I, I mean, I, I definitely experienced racism in England, you know, very early on, like there was definitely an anti-immigrant sort of thing in the politics of the 1970s in England with like the National Front and Enoch Powell and all these people who were very much your sort of anti-immigrant people. So there was definitely that. Mm. And my dad, I think, dealt with that because he had a little corner shop looking into like a bodega here in New York. For right. But it was interesting because it was all sort of like, you know, today you think about that stuff and you go like, that's horrible. But back then it was like, it was sort of thought of as just the price you paid for being an immigrant, you know, like you just, you just sort of took it as like, oh, that's all in a day's work. So, so there was that sense of otherness that I always felt that then probably was in all the work I did in some ways, but then most noticeably in the daily show, I think it was like, I got to really kind of address that in some ways or like deal with it, even though it was years later and it was much more about post 9-11 in America and all the racial shit that was going on in this country at that point. But 
the Amer- probably on some level that America post 9-11 when I was started on The Daily Show resembled a little bit. Of, there was some memory of like the sort of racial stuff that I had dealt with as a kid in Bradford, just getting chased home from the bus stop, you know? Wow. Just for being brown. Right, right. Was that a reason when you were 16 that you moved to Tampa looking for something else? I mean, I, I read that your dad said you, it was because there was brunch in the <laughs> United States. That's what I heard. But. So that is part, well, part of it is that my dad discovered brunch and was like, this is the greatest thing ever. And actually wrote about <laughs> it in my book. And, and it was like, it was such a funny thing because I remember him talking about brunch this was the eighties and there was no brunch in the UK. Like we didn't have, there was no such thing as brunch and he misunderstood it. I think he thought what it was, was another meal. So I think he thought like you have breakfast, like in England, you have breakfast, you have lunch and then you have dinner. Right. Whereas in America, you have breakfast, then you have brunch, then you have (laughs) lunch. Right. So he was like, you get a whole extra meal over there. (laughs) Did he feel cheated in the end when he realized that he was actually taking two and one and it was less meal now? (laughs) Right, right, right. I think later in life, later after he moved here, I think he was kind of like, oh, okay. But he still did like the idea that it was $7.95, all you can eat. Like it was that, it was back in the 80s, so that was what it was. You know, you go to, you go to IHOP and you just like the buffet is like, you know, I think there was that. And then I think it was also just that, we were living in, in sort of an England at the time, Thatcher's England, you know, it was Thatcher. And, and it was, it was a recession, the economy. My dad was a small business owner. It wasn't doing that well. And he'd always wanted to get out of England at some point. Okay. His original dream was to move to Canada. I don't know why. I've never actually asked him about that. Like he always was like, we'll live in Canada one day. It was so random. It's like, one day, we won't always be living here. One day, we're going to live in Canada. We're going to go to Canada. Well, it was just another really cold place. Yeah, I know. Really? I don't think he realized that. I don't think he, yeah. Yeah. I don't think he realized that. I think he was just, I think he had a friend who lived in Canada and liked it. So he was like, oh, we'll live there. But then he found a friend who lived in Tampa, Florida. And this friend was like, Tampa's even better than Canada. It's like, it's sunnier. And this was in the 80s, so Florida was like a place that you wanted to live, not like now, you know? Like it wasn't, like back then, it it was like, it was the fastest growing state in the union. There were businesses, it was was just like this really developing place, you know? And so uh, the idea was you you could make a fortune in Florida, you know? So yes. Thank you. Everyone from Florida just tuned out, by the way, but no, thank you for I, that. Listen, I, I appreciate I that. Am, I, <laughs> I'm from Florida and I, and I have a yeah. complicated relationship. Like, like Florida is where I spent many of my formative years. So I, I, I love it. And I also uh, yes. have a healthy critique of the place. <laughs> yeah. Was it, was it more racially diverse than Bradford or, or did you know? Well, it was, the joke I made about it was that, like, this was the difference between being an immigrant in England and being an immigrant in America at that time. And that was that in England, the idea was that no matter how hard you tried, you would never be English. That was the, the, the sort of the message that was sent to you. And I think it's probably even still true today, which is that you can speak like us, dress like us, talk like us, eat our food, eat fish and chips every day. 
you can you can do all that and you'll never really be English because being English is something. And that I think is a legacy of colonialism and, and sort of like that whole relationship that England has with the subcontinent, which is very specific. In America, on the other hand, I got here in the 80s and went to high school and I felt like most people didn't couldn't tell you what India was on a map. Like it was like this idea of like, where are you from? Mexico? No, India. What? Where's that? You know? Is it near Mexico? No, it's not near Mexico. <laughs> like, <laughs> so anything like it was like that sense of like, well, don't worry about that. Wherever you're from, I'm sure it's fine. But now you're in the greatest country in the world. You're in America. And so just pledge allegiance to the flag and forget all that stuff. You know, you've got, sorry, 5,000 years of history. Ah, forget that. Right. Now you're an American. <laughs> and, and that was the attitude here, right? Like just pledge allegiance and just uh, get on board with the with the American way now. And so then that was it. And, right. and it was like nobody really cared. But the racial divide in this country when I got here was between blacks and whites. Right. And, and it was very clear. I remember going to high school, like the first week of high school, and realizing that all the black students sat on one side of the cafeteria and all the white students sat on the other side of the cafeteria. And that was just the way they decided. Nobody was forcing them to do that. That was just right. how it went down. This was like self-imposed segregation that was happening. It was kind of an interesting thing, you know. It was like it was like I was like, oh, and and I also fit in with like the drama kids. Like I basically I found my tribe in the drama kids who were mostly white because only only uh, white parents were going to be like, you want to do drama? Okay, that's fine. <laughs> you know, even Indian parents were like, no, drama? No, 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 no. <laughs> you know. But I, I managed to, I managed to get away with it. And when did that start for you? Your interest in theater. When did that start for you? Oh, very young. I actually uh, was in the school play when I was like eight years old or something. And then I fell in love with it and realized like, oh, this is going to be, it was very acting and theater and performing. Once I discovered it at a very young age, it was like, that was it. Like I never looked back. Like I basically was like, I'm going to, okay. I want to do this. And I didn't know, obviously, like I had no idea if I was going to be successful at it or anything or make it a career. It didn't seem like a realistic thing to be able to do that as a career, but I just knew that I loved it. And I have to say my parents were smart enough because honestly, I couldn't do anything else. I was terrible at every other subject in school, except English and, and theater. It was like my parents were smart enough to not discourage it, but also to not encourage it. You know, they were kind of just like neutral about it. My mother, so in my, in my school in England, we didn't have theater. We had art. But she knew that I loved theater because I would go to an after-school kind of kids' theater thing on Wednesday nights when I was in England. And I started going there, and it was just like – the first time I felt, I mean, I don't know how it was for you, but like, it was just like, I was like, oh, this is awesome. Like, I love doing this, right. you know, and I love, and it was funny because I actually, so it was, I saw the movie Bugsy Malone. Remember that movie? Okay, yeah. So not not the one with uh, Warren Beatty. Oh, not that one. No, then. No, okay. no. I'm talking about a movie called Bugsy Malone, which was with a very young Scott Baio. And a very young Jodie Foster. No, I don't know this movie. You don't know this movie? No, I don't know this movie. Check check it out. It's a treat. It's basically a gangster movie, but it's all kids. 
and it's done totally straight. But the kids come in with guns, and instead of shooting bullets, they're shooting pies. Okay. But it's done completely straight. Like it's not like campy or send up or anything. It's like a straight up gangster movie, but everybody in the movie is like 14 years old. Okay. And I just remember it was on TV Christmas Eve when I was like about the same age as as the characters in the movie. As the kid, yeah. And I watched it and I just thought, that is the greatest thing. Like, like, wait a minute, they get to do this? And like, that's what they do? And they were the same age as me. And I was like, why am I not doing that? Like, it's so fun. Right. And and that was like, weirdly, when I decided, like, I want to do that. I just want to, I want to be in a movie where I get to like, you know, shoot pies in people's faces and just pretend to be a gangster and do all this. And that's when I sort of like got involved with this after school theater program. And, and, uh, and then it just all kicked off from there for me. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV True Crime Podcast, to live and die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. 
he just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am, like I am, where it is. This isn't going to work. I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, if no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You went to the University of South Florida, studying theater then. By then, are you thinking, because before you said you weren't sure about doing it as a career, but by then, were you settled that this is what you wanted to do? Well, again, so I went to the University of South Florida because I had shitty grades. Okay. Here's the thing. What happened was we came to Florida, and there was a big transition period for me, because I was 16 when we got to Florida. It was like I was a junior in high school, and I was adapting to this new world and this new country and life and everything was different. And I think my academics just sort of like fell off. And the only saving grace I had was theater class, was drama class. And so I like lived for fifth period every day, which was drama class. And that's where I like got to like, just, you know, do what I did. So my grades were terrible, but because I sucked on my SATs, I ended up getting a theater scholarship to the University of South Florida. So the only way they would accept me was if I was a theater major. Right. And they gave me what's called a freshman incentive scholarship. So they would pay for my entire freshman year, but I had to be a theater major. Okay. And my parents had just moved to this new country. They were struggling. They were trying to figure out like, you know, how to survive in this new place. And so I had this, I basically said, look, look, I, I didn't get into school. USF, but I got in, you don't have to pay my tuition and they'll pay my tuition if I am a theater major. And so sometimes it's just like destiny just fucking leads you down the path that you're supposed to go on. And this is just one of those moments where my parents were like, uh, okay. (laughs) They weren't (laughs) happy about it, but they were also like, if they're going to pay for it, then great. And I was like, they're going to pay for it. So I became a theater major and then just stayed a theater major. And that was, you know, and I just went that went through the program there, you know? Right. Yeah. And that's where I learned, you know, that I did all of my Chekhov and Ibsen. Right. All the did visual. you begin writing that as well? I actually started writing when I was really young. I actually was always writing stuff. I was also always writing, like, I, sh- I wrote a short play when I was like 13 years old. And then I would write poetry. It was one of those, I was that kid who would write poetry 
talk about an artsy farsi kid. Like I literally, like I would write, write poetry and then people would come over, like my friends, my parents would have dinner parties and or have their friends over and then their friends' kids would come over. There was like a big South Asian community in Bradford. So they, the kids of my parents' friends would just become my friends by virtue of the right. fact that we all, our parents were friends, right? It was the opposite of what happens now, which is like you become friends with people because your kids are friends. It's right. just like the opposite, right. you know? These kids would be like, hey, you want to go kick a ball around or something? And I'd be like, no, but let me read you some of my poems that I wrote. And I would like, <laughs> they'd be like, why don't you and so-and-so go and play together? And they want us to go to the backyard or whatever and just play. And I'd be like, come in my room. And I'd pull out like my tray of poems I'd written from under the bed. And just like, and I just remember like some poor kid sitting there, like some poor girl who was like, like my age was the daughter of some friends of my parents just having to sit there and listen to me, like read my poems to her, you know, like, and not, and like a completely dorky thing to like, I was like, I was like, what do you think? And then they'd be like, I, I, I don't, I don't have any thoughts about it at all. Like, so anyway, so I was, uh, I was always writing. And then I, I think when I got to, to college and stuff, then I was writing a little bit more and sort of, yeah, writing was always, I was always doing it. I was always sort of writing something. Right. So you're doing Ibsen and Shakespeare and Chekhov in college, and then you go work for Disney, right? You were a performer at Disney yeah. World? Is that your first job? Yeah. Yeah. Were you like Mickey? Were you like Mickey Mouse? Or? I was, <laughs> I'll have you know, Brian, that Mickey yeah. Mouse is a girl. So. Oh, <laughs> Really? Always, it's always a girl because Mickey Mouse is very short. Mickey Mouse, they don't usually find boys that short, so it's often a young girl. Mickey and Minnie are both often young girls because we actually shared a trailer. Like, so I was in a, I was when I got the job at Disney, it was at the MGM Studios, and I was actually with all these like comedy improv people, and they and we would do like comedy improv stuff. And it was actually kind of great. It was like a really great, it was like, cause I left school to go do that job. I, I, I didn't graduate and okay. I left because at the time we were not, we were still not citizens of the United States. So I was still paying out of state tuition and my parents, cause now I was like three or four years in my parents were working, but they weren't making, we weren't doing that well. We were very, very lower middle class, like sort of, you know, and so I was paying for like, I was taking like one class a semester. So it was taking me a long time to get through school. And then I get this job where Disney MGM Studios is opening up in Orlando and they're hiring actor, comedians, performers, not like Mickey's and Minnie's and Goofy's. They were like looking right. for like comedy people because they wanted to do this, like they wanted to have a comedy troupe. And so me and all of my friends, we all went and auditioned. We all drove to Orlando and we auditioned. And I remember I auditioned with this Eric Bogosian piece that I had been working on in my scene study class. And it was just this piece that I had from his show, Drinking in America. Okay. And I did this Bogosian monologue and got this job at Disney MGM Studios. And at the time, they were paying me more money than I'd ever seen. You know, I was making $450 a week. Okay. And... They were going to get me my, they were like, I was going to have my own apartment and they were going to put me up, you know, the whole thing. So I was like, I'm going, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go leave school and drop out of school and go make some money. Right. And then I, the idea was I was going to come back and finish my degree, but I, I never did. I, I went to Orlando and started working. So it was like an improv comedy troupe 
And the people they hired were from all over the country. So, you know, there were people from like Dudley Riggs and, and, right. and, and UCB. And in fact, Mo Collins, who later went on to become a cast member of Mad TV. Yep. Uh, her and I were both in the original comedy cast at Disney MGM Studios. That's amazing. I was in Minneapolis doing theater for a while. So I was never at Dudley Riggs, but knew Mo Collins, oh. who, who, yeah, from, from Minneapolis. And- oh, you, pr- yeah. Yeah, so she came from there, and what a genius improviser she is, and was, and continues to be. But I was, it was like a great training ground for me. Like it was just, it was kind of like what The Daily Show was much, many years later, which is like I just got to work with these incredibly funny people, you know, and, and we were all kind of in our early 20s, and our careers were all just starting. And, you know, it was, it was Mo, and then there was Peter and Paul Vogt. Peter, Paul Vogt, I think, also was a cast member on, on Mad TV later. There were just all these great people, and, and I got to work there with them, and we would basically just do improv and play these characters at the Disney MGM Studios, and I just learned so much. I just learned so much about comedy and, and improvisation and timing and all, all that stuff. It was almost like my grad school because I never went to grad school and I dropped out of undergrad and then I went here and, and Disney and just, and I worked there and I worked there and then I worked at Universal Studios down the road. And so I was in Orlando for like a couple of years just doing like the theme park thing yeah. and just doing, you know, I worked with, I don't know if you're familiar with SAC Theater. They were like a, a improv comedy troupe and they would do a lot of the Renaissance fairs and okay. stuff. So a lot of people who worked at MGM also came from the Ren Fair circuit. So I was doing like Renaissance fairs <laughs> and all that stuff, and sort of deep in that world for a little while. Yeah. So it was great. It was, a, but it was a great training ground for just doing funny stuff, you know. When did you decide to move to New York? You were there a couple of years. I was there a couple of years. I started dating a girl down in, in Orlando and she wanted to move to New York. Okay. And I was done with my contract. <laughs> I was done with my contract at Universal. And I was like, yeah, I guess, you know, I was like, what am I going to do? I, I kind of done. I got my equity card. I kind of was like, maybe it's time to like go try my luck in New York City. And you do a number of shows fairly quickly. Brigadoon, Disgraced. Well, that was, that was later. Okay. That was all later. When, when I first got to New York, okay. so this was, what year was that? 1993? And the first show that I get, it was like a week after I got to New York, was a show called Saddam. Saddam? <laughs> and, oh, no. And it was, a co- it was a comedy about Saddam Hussein. A comedy? Yeah. It was this weird comedy oh. about Saddam Hussein, and it was in Baltimore, Maryland. So I get to New York. I have an audition for this regional theater gig. Oh, and in I get Baltimore. This, okay. In Baltimore, right? In New York, I auditioned for it. And it was like a four-character play. And I played an Iraqi an Iraqi soldier who was also a stand-up comic. And <laughs> Wait. It was a bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> so this was the first show that I got in New York. And then I go to Baltimore for like four weeks. And we do this play. Saddam, a comedy in two acts. And it was like, <laughs> so we're doing this show. And the same guy that owns the cabaret space also owns the nightclub next door. Okay. So in the middle of the show, he would open up the nightclub. So we'd be like in the middle of this play 
with like cabaret audience, people drinking when I didn't have it. And then suddenly, like the wall would just be like, and we were like, dude, you can't do that. Like we were fucking being drowned out by this noise coming right. in from the club next door. Right. And he was like, no, man, because because he owned both spaces and he right. didn't want to like lose any money. So he was just like, I'll just open the club. <laughs> so anyway, that was my... It was it was crazy. It was like, and then we're competing against this like dance music coming through the walls, and so that was my first uh, gig. So you were really living that New York theater actor life, like you're doing regional theaters, and yeah, I was doing the regional theater gig. I was doing Shakespeare. I did the North Carolina Shakespeare Festival. Mm -hmm. I did like you know Saddam, the comedy in two acts in Baltimore. I did, <laughs> uh, yeah, and I was doing like off off Broadway stuff. You know, I was really, I was getting up at like five o'clock in the morning and standing. It used to be back in those days, you'd get up and you'd go to Actors Equity and you'd stand in line outside Actors Equity at like six o'clock in the morning with your bagel and your cup of coffee. And you'd get an appointment to just have an audition for some assistant of some casting director just to get seen yeah. for like, for Pippin in like in Oklahoma or something, you know, like, right. and so that was it. And then, you know, you do these open calls. And so that's the life I was living for a long time. Where I was just like trying to just get like a gig here, a gig there, like maybe get a commercial. I was doing extra work for a while. I was an extra on a bunch of movies. Okay. And so like I was just, I was making, I was literally getting my, like my SAG insurance just done by doing extra work for like wow. a couple of years. You know? Well, I saw, I saw Brigadoon, Oklahoma on your resume. Do you sing? So I don't sing. I mean, I, okay, let me, let me paraphrase that. I sing well enough to like be an actor who can sing okay. but i'm not like a singer like i don't like have like a broadway singing voice so oklahoma came much later oklahoma came in 2002 and by then i'd already done my one-man show and all this stuff and that was you know like my big break right i was doing my, my one-man show and stuff and and then i got oklahoma and it was the weirdest thing because i had done my one-man show i gotten a lot of attention for it I did this movie with Ismail Merchant, with Merchant Ivory, called The Mystic Masseur. And I was thinking like, okay, now my career is, I'm going to do movies. That's what I'm going to do. Okay. This is going to be it now. And so I went out to LA and the phone's not ringing. The phone's not ringing. Nobody saw Mystic Masseur. It was like a movie that no, it just basically nobody saw it. Like nobody cared. You know, like, you know. And so I'm sitting in LA and I'm thinking like, all right. And then the phone rings and my agents are like, you have an audition for Oklahoma on Broadway. And I was like, what? And they were like, yeah, they want you to read for The Peddler. And it's a non-singing comedy role, yeah. right? There's a song, but it's like a patter song. It's like a da 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 da, -da, -da. You know, you can talkie sing it, right? Talk sing, that's, that's, my, that's my forte. That's your forte. Yeah. Yeah, talk yeah. singing, yeah. I'm great at that. You talk in rhythm. You just talk like, you know, That's 20 right. minutes ago, I am free, like a breeze, free <laughs> like a bird in the woodland wild, free like a gypsy, free like a child. I am untouched. It's, like, it's just that kind of, you know. So anyway, Trevor Nunn was directing Oklahoma on Broadway. It was the National Rush Theater. up your Shakespeare stars. Yeah, da -da -da -da. exactly. Now, yes, I'm great at that. Yeah. Hey, there you go. So you're great. Yeah. So that was, yeah, so they were like, you know, they want to read you and they want you to do like a, a song. So anyway, I, I, I sent in a tape from New York, I mean, from LA. And then they said, oh, you have a, you have a callback and they want to see you. So then I came back to New York and read for Trevor Nunn, who couldn't have been nicer and, and was just 
great. And, and, and they were bringing the, the, the production that had done at the National Theater was with Hugh Jackman as, as Curly and Shula Hensley, who went, went on to win the BAFTA and then the Tony in New York. So then the production in New York was with uh, Patrick Wilson as Curly. And they had sort of lost some of their British cast. And so they needed to recast it with Americans. So I auditioned for The Peddler and I got the part. And I was just, it was just, it was like, I was funny. So like, they were like, great. Right. I think the problem was that the guy in England was not very funny and they wanted it to be funnier. So they were like, okay, we didn't, we don't care if you can sing. And I remember going in for my audition with Susan Stroman of all people. Okay. And she was the choreographer. And I was like, oh my God. I was like, listen, I'm not a dancer. And I told my agents, I'm not a dancer. I'm not, I don't, I was a Michael Jackson impersonator in high school, but that's about it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I'm not this Oklahoma dancing. I don't do that. Like, my body doesn't move that way. And so uh, they were like, don't worry about it. And so, like, I go in and I, I just shit the bed in the dance audition. And I thought, that's it. That's never happening. And then uh, they called me and they were like, and they don't actually care if you can't dance. They just want you to be funny. And uh, so I was like, well, that's good, you know. So it was great. And I, so I ended up doing that for a year. It was the greatest time. You know, I, I can honestly say, like, it was, I've been fortunate to have a very diverse career, <laughs> yeah. you know? Like, I've gotten to do a lot of things that you wouldn't expect, you know? But I never wanted to, I never expected to be in a musical, yeah. no less two, because then years later, City Center was doing Brigadoon, and Patrick Wilson was starring in it again, and he said, oh, there's this comic sidekick character who's like a great part. There's no singing. It's just got to be funny. And they're like, why don't we get awesome? So, you know, by then, like people knew who I was. So they got me to do that. Now, I'm going to be honest. I'm going to be totally honest. Oh, here we go. I'm not a big musical guy. As I displayed, I don't sing that well. I saw you in Oklahoma. I don't remember much. Oh, my God. But Schuler, who I don't really know, so I'm not going to pretend, yeah. But he went to my high school. He did? He was he was older than me. Yeah, he yeah. was older than me. So yeah, I didn't know old. him in, in high school. But yes, I saw I saw the production with Patrick and with you. Yeah. I didn't know you at the time, but I knew Schuler. And yeah. Wow. I was there. I was one of those you were one brilliant of audience members. Yeah, yeah. I just remember we had a rehearsal once and Trevor, you know, we were in the Gershwin Theater, which is that ginormous theater right there on 52nd Street. And it's concrete, right? So it's one of the few concrete theaters in, in Broadway houses. Like it's not like the Broadway houses, for those of you who don't know, like they're acoustically beautifully built. So the sound bounces, but the Gershwin is not. The Gershwin is like a sound black hole, you know, it's just like, and so it's just like concrete, which just absorbs the sound. So you really got to project. And it's also the biggest Broadway theater on, on Broadway. It's like 2000 seats or something. So you really got to hit that back wall, you know, you got, and everyone's mic'd and, you know, in those musicals and stuff. So, right. I remember Trevor giving a note to the cast. He was like, it was like after, like, I think our first dress rehearsal or something. And he, he was, he, got, he was like, he said, you know, in his, in his very proper English, he was like, now everybody really just needs to just hit that back wall. I know you're mic'd, but really it's a, it's a very large theater. You just really just have to get all the way to the back of the house. Everybody, every last seat should hear clearly, crystal clear. So everyone, make sure you hit that back wall. Except you, Asif. You're fine. <laughs> <laughs> you can bring it down a bit. <laughs> you, actually, that sounds like 
every director that I ever had as well. You and I would have competed, I think. Yeah. We, you and I would have yeah, competed yeah. for <laughs> sure. <laughs> I was like, it was so much like, it was just like, I was like, oh, yeah, okay. You might be overacting a little bit, but um, <laughs> it was so much fun. It was so much fun to do that. And then getting to work with Patrick again years later and also Kelly O'Hara, who I'd never worked with. But, but yeah, it's weird. I'm not a musical theater guy either. You know, full disclosure, I don't even really go to musicals, not yeah. much. But I have to say, being in a musical was just a blast. It was just the greatest it's, fun yeah. thing to do. I'll share with you, I was doing theater in Minneapolis. You know, summer was usually, there wasn't a lot going on. And I got offered a, um, an opera in northern Michigan. And I was like, I don't wow. sing. I can't do it. And they were like, no, no, no. I think it was Defleeter Mouse. And there's like a 15-minute or something just set piece, a drunk jailer right. that comes in, does his like shtick for 15 minutes, and then get, you know falls asleep in the cell or whatever, and then everybody keeps singing again. But there's like 15 minutes of just one character acting on the stage. Wow. And I did that. And I'll tell you, it was the most fun job because I could show up like in the middle of act two, yeah. go in, do my little thing, and then move along. Yeah. It was, yeah, it was a good time. It was just like a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of fun. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV True Crime Podcast, to live and die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. 
oldest girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am, like I am, where it is. This isn't going to work. I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So during this time in New York, I saw your resume and I was like, oh yeah, no, he was doing the New York thing. Law and orders. <laughs> Every law and order. Multiple yeah. times. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Doing all those shows in New York. So through theater, through, I assume commercials, but also film roles. And as you said, you know, early on doing extra work, you know, you were making a living as an actor. Yeah, mostly. The good thing was it was steadily... I was getting like better parts and you know, I was also supplementing my income with cater waitering. Okay. But I was getting enough like I would get a commercial every now and then or I'd get like a, a small theater gig. Later I started getting small parts in movies. And it was just sort of like my resume was slowly just starting to build and I think it's what kept me going. I think if I had stalled out or felt like I wasn't getting anywhere you know, I don't know what I would have done. I might have, I might have ended up going back to Tampa or whatever, you know, like, but it was enough to keep me like, I was like, and, and, and honestly, like I was living in this place in Long Island city, Queens, where I had like one room and I was sharing this apartment with these South American grad students. And I was basically had one room and I shared the bathroom and the kitchen with these grad students. And it was in this building that was like, Right there in Long Island City, and I was paying three hundred dollars a month in rent for that one room. And had it not been for the fact that my rent was uh, it was very low, and even three hundred bucks a month, sometimes I was like, I can't. You know, it was that scene with Will Ferrell and the little girl. You know, I was like, <laughs> I was like, I can't afford the rent. She's like, you have to pay the rent. You know, <laughs> but I managed to survive. You know, I managed to somehow just keep 
stepping up the ladder a little bit, a little bit. And then I started getting bigger opportunities and then, and then bigger things started to come my way. You know, I think the first sort of real thing that I got was, uh, in 1994, which was a couple of years after I, a year or so after I came to New York, I was an understudy at Lincoln Center in the place suburbia by Eric Bogosian, who was like my idol from way back when. And so Bogosian had written this play called Suburbia and it was with Steve Zahn and Martha Plimpton and Zach Orth and Tim Guinea and all these like New York theater actors. Steve Zahn at the time was like the guy, Josh Hamilton, you know, they, they were like all breaking out into movies and stuff. Steve Zahn had just done Reality Bites with Ben Stiller and Ethan Hawke. And it was kind of a cool little gig. And, and I got, I didn't even get in the show. I was, I was the understudy in the show. But, you know, it was better than I'd done anything else. You know, so it was like, it was like suddenly I was getting like stuff where I was starting to like move up the ladder. And then the year later, I got like an off-Broadway gig. Uh, an off-Broadway play called Death Defying Acts, where I was actually in the show. It was uh, a three-one acts written by Elaine May, David Mamet, and Woody Allen. And uh, I was in this play with Linda Lavin. And it was like me and Linda Lavin on stage together for like 10 minutes in the middle of this little one act where I played her do- her the delivery guy who was coming to her apartment where she's trying to commit suicide. And so it was like a funny little play by Elaine May that ran for a year or so and I was on, I was doing that. And so it's just like starting to like sort of build stuff and get more and more. Yeah. You mentioned before you were on the daily show Yeah, for almost a decade. Why did you decide to audition for that show or how did that come about? I, I, I ended up on the daily show in a very unusual way, which is not the usual trajectory for people on the daily show. Cause I wasn't doing stand up. I had done stand up, right. But I, it wasn't my world, and I had done a one-man show and all this stuff. But I was an actor doing, like, theater, and they just had written this piece, and they needed a Middle East correspondent, and they didn't have one. Okay. And it was written, I remember, it was like Tim Carvel wrote this piece, and, you know, Tim Carvel was now head writer for uh, John Oliver, and it was all about the Iraq War, and this was 2006, and it was after 9-11, it was, it was really a beautifully written piece of satire and comedy. It was just, I think it's still one of my all-time favorite pieces that I ever did on the show. But they were looking, and so they called my agent. They were like, and I remember that day, it was August 9th, 2006. And, you know, there are those days in your life where your life changes. Yeah. You know, not, not always, but this was a day where my life changed. and. I woke up in that morning and I was writing a letter to my ex-girlfriend. It was one of those, dear John, like, I'm sorry. Like, you know, I just found out she gotten engaged and I was like okay. still holding on to some idea that we were going to get back together. So I write this letter and I'm writing it longhand and I'm sitting and the phone rings. Now my manager was like, the daily show wants to see you for an audition today. And I remember just being like, yeah, I don't know, I'm kind of sad today. How about tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I don't feel very, I don't feel great today. I'm kind of really in a miserable place. And I, they're like, tomorrow? Well, I don't think so. It looks like if they don't, they're going to find someone today or not. Oh, that's it. And I was this close to not going because I thought it was going to be like some stupid thing where, 
you know, like I've done these on letter on, on Letterman and other places where I go down and I pretend to like do the voice of some terrorist or something or on a flying carpet or something, you know, like some weird thing where they put a turban on me or some <laughs> shit. They, they pay you like a couple of hundred bucks and you go home, you know? And I thought, yeah. oh, this is fucking bullshit. Like I don't want And so I said to my manager, I was like, what's it for? And they were like, it's actually for a correspondent. Because originally I said no. And then they called back and they were like, you know, it's for a correspondent. So just, just FYI if that changes your mind. And I didn't know if it was like a full-time gig or anything like that. So I was like, fuck it, I'll go. So I said, what time are they seeing people? She said, for four o'clock. I was like, I'll be there at 3.45. And, and, and the time I lived on the Upper West Side, the Daily Show taped like 20 blocks down from where I lived. So I just literally just walked down to the Daily Show. And I walk in, there's Jon Stewart, and he's got his, you know, his khakis, his, no, his corduroys and his, his uh, sweatshirt, baseball cap. And I watched the show, you know, so I was like, oh, cool, John Stewart, you know? Right. And, uh, oh, and at first, I remember first they gave me the sides and there was all this stuff. And I was like, I was like, oh my God, I got to memorize all this right now. And then I was like sitting there trying to memorize it. And then they came out and they were like, no, 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 it's on the teleprompter. And I was like such a theater snob. I was like, teleprompter. I'm like, oh, this is fucking bullshit. Like, so I literally was just <laughs> like, all right, fine, fuck it, whatever. So I just <laughs> go in there. And honestly, it was one of those moments where, I really was like, I'm not going to get this. And I was like, if I don't get it, who cares? If I do get it, great. You know? Right. And it was one of those moments where I just didn't care. So I literally just went in and I read the teleprompter and I did the bit with John. And John was super nice. And he was like, you know, and I remember him saying to me, like, have you ever performed in front of a live audience before? Because, you know, the, the Daily right. Show tapes in front of a live audience. So he was like, have you ever performed in front of a live audience? And I remember just looking at him being like, dude, I've been on Broadway. <laughs> and, and he was and he was like oh okay mr broadway <laughs> he was like i was like he's like let's see what mr broadway has got and then i did it and i literally just did my best stephen colbert impression like I, that's all i knew how to do like i was like i'd watch right. the show i kind of would watch stephen colbert watch Carell, all these guys you know and helms and everyone and then and i was like all right i'll just do that i'll just do what they did so I just did it. And then John was like, after the thing, he looked at me and he stood up and he was like, dude, congratulations. Welcome to The Daily Show. He just said it right away? Yeah. He just like said, welcome to The Daily Show. You're going to be on tonight. And now, to be fair, it was a one-off gig, right? It wasn't a, a contract. So it was like a one-off gig. Okay. And he was like, you're going to be on the show tonight. And I was like, all right. He was like, are you busy? I was like, no, of course not. And so <laughs> that night... I'm on the Daily Show. I'm taping at like five o'clock. I go off for rehearsal and they, you know, I don't know if you've ever been to the show, but like basically before they do the taping, there's a rehearsal with the producers and stuff and the writers. So the writers and producers are sitting out there and I see this guy sitting in the audience with a baseball cap on and I'm looking at him and I'm staring and I'm like, I know that guy. And it's Bruce Springsteen. What? And yeah. And so Springsteen, he's a big fan of the show. Love John. John, you know, like huge Springsteen fan. So he just came by to see the taping and he just brought his son. And so the two of them are just sitting in the rehearsal because they let him in early so he wouldn't have to deal with the crowds and stuff. So like he's sitting in the audience and I'm like, are you fucking kidding me right now? And then I go backstage <laughs> and I'm like, and I remember talking to the, the crew and I was like, guys, do you know the Bruce Springsteen is out there? And they were like, yeah, yeah, we know. We, you know, and, and I was like, is that like a normal thing here? Like you just have like mega stars to show up and sit in the rehearsal, sit in a rehearsal. And they were like, no, they were like, 
couple of weeks ago, J.K. Rowling was here, but nobody knows what she looks like. So she was totally fine. <laughs> <laughs> and so that night I taped, I taped the show. Then we got done. It was a great piece. It was like a phenomenal. I can take no credit for it except for the fact that I performed it and did it and sold it. And John, I think, was really happy with it. I went backstage after the show. John's like, stick around. I want you to come into the, they have a post-mortem room where they go over the show afterwards. John was like, come back. I want to, you know, so I go in the post-mortem room, all the writers and everybody is sitting around like discussing how the show went. And as I'm walking out, Springsteen is in the hallway waiting to say hi to John. And he sees me and he puts out his hand. He's like, hey, you did a really good job. I heard it was your first time. And I was like, yeah, it was my first time. This is, the, this is so weird. And that was the day. That was the day because then everybody was just calling me like, what the fuck? It was just a guy that looked like you on The Daily Show. And I'm like, no, it was me. I was like, because I didn't even have a chance to tell anyone. Right. I didn't tell my parents. I didn't tell anyone. And then there was an article the next day in the LA Times because I was the first non-white correspondent on the show. And wow. I remember this article was like, The Daily Show has this brown guy on there. Like, what the <laughs> fuck is going on? Like, you know, they've gone diverse. And then John just really liked me. And he was like, you know what? I'm just going to call you back if we need you again. And then they just kept calling me back. And every couple of weeks, I'd go down and do a taping. I would just get paid whatever for the day or whatever. And then after about four or five months of that, John offered me a contract on the show. And then I, and then the rest is history, as they say. Like it was just like, and that really did that, that moment. Like there was definitely a, a switch where my career went from one point to another, you know, maybe like for you, probably on the office or something, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like it was just suddenly like, boom. And the weird thing was that because on the daily show, they use my real name. Right. People would call me by my real name. And I just remember like, realizing like oh the impact that this show is having in terms of like it's zeitgeist because i'd been on stuff i'd done like you said law and order and all the tv shows I'd done movies i'd done stuff but i'd never been on anything that had the level of like cultural penetration right. that the daily show had and i remember going to a play and danny devito was standing outside the theater waiting with his family or whatever and i'm walking into the theater and danny devito turned around and looked at me and went asif how you doing? And put out his hand. That was like a moment where I was like, oh, wow, what the fuck is going on? Like, this is like, <laughs> that had never, you know what I mean? Like, that's when I suddenly was like, right. oh, there are people in Hollywood watching this show that can change the course of where my career goes. Well, what's interesting is that you didn't just stick in the Daily Show lane. I mean, the, the number of projects that you have done and the diversity of projects have been uh, amazing. Drama creating your own work after the daily show you had the funny or die sitcom halal and the family yeah and it's been amazing to see you take the platform that you were given by the daily show and have done you know s such a diversity of projects i think that at the end of the day i think i am an actor and always had done a lot of dramatic work prior to the daily show. i think what happened with the daily show was it was such a you know, like I said, like a zeitgeist thing that people suddenly thought of me as a comedian. They were like, oh, you're the Daily Show right. comedian guy. When the reality is like I'd done a lot of dramatic work prior to it. And and when I did the Daily Show, actually, while I was on the Daily Show, I did Disgraced at Lincoln Center, which was the Ayad Akhtar's Pulitzer Prize winning play. And I played Amazing. the lead role in that. And it was yeah. an incredibly dramatic thing. And I got to do some movies and stuff and, and you know, all this stuff. but I always 
felt like my career has always been one where I've gotten to go back and forth. And the writing, you know, I, I wrote a movie and I produced and starred in it and um, in a book and, and wrote a book. Yeah, I think I think going all the way back to early in my career, there was never a specific lane for me. You know, like I never felt like I had a lane. And because I didn't have that, because there wasn't a space when I first started out, you know, like I went to LA, I remember, and just sat in my apartment and people were like, there's no parts for you. And as a brown actor, the only way for me to work, and that's when I wrote, when I wrote Sakina's Restaurant, which is my one man show, like it was out of necessity of like writing characters that I, so it was always that thing of like, I just always had to be kind of entrepreneurial about the whole thing. So, so I think it's just, I think it's part of that DNA of just like always going, okay, what can I create? And, and, you know, that continues to this day where I feel like I'm always thinking about like, okay, what can I create? What can I write? Can I do? And, you know, and right. Yeah. Well, Sakina's restaurant, by the way, your one man show won an OB. Yeah. And got you a lot of attention for that. As I said, Halal and the family as well. And your book, No Lands Man. That book gave you, I, by the way, I wrote a book. Welcome to Dunder Mifflin was my book. Yours talked about your, your acting career, your experience on The Daily Show, and, and your life as an immigrant. And as we talked earlier, a lot of the material about the post-9-11 days, but also your life in England as well and where you came from, right? Yeah. I mean, the book was sort of, while I was on The Daily Show and had that platform, a publisher approached me and said, have you ever thought about writing a book? At that point, I hadn't. And I thought, well, it'd be kind of a fun thing to do. I'd written a one-man show. And so I thought yeah. I could write a bunch of short stories. Little did I know, it's not as easy as you think. <laughs> no. It was like, you know, I mean, you know. So it's, it's like you think, oh, yeah, yeah. I got 10 short stories in me, for sure. I can write that. I can bang that out in a couple of months. Cut to like two years later and I'm like fucking writer's block and I'm sitting there and my, and my publisher's calling me up going like, we really should get something soon, right? Like, you know, but I had an amazing editor and, and it was definitely a lot of work, but I'm so proud of it because it was like, it was really, you know, it, it was a book that I didn't even know was in me. But awesome. once I started excavating, I realized like, oh, this, this, this these stories that I want to tell, you know? That's great. Well, and your career keeps growing and expanding in new directions. Now, Evil just got picked up, right? For a third season? Yeah, Paramount Plus. We're on Paramount Plus now. Yeah, third season coming out. Uh, we're in the middle of shooting it right now. Oh, okay. Yeah, and that's we're almost done with the third season. And, and so it comes out in June. I have to say, I'm fortunate. I, I mean, when you get to work with like really great creatives, you know, you, you know this, like it, it makes everything just better, you know, like you just, cause you feel like you're in good hands and you feel like you're being taken care of and, and, and the yeah. writing is good, you know? And I felt that way when I was in the daily show working with John, I felt, and now working with Robert and Michelle King, you know, who are just at the top of their game and, you know, and, and, and it's just such a treat to get to work with them and learn from the way they work. And then also just work with the actors on the show, you know, uh, Katja and Mike and uh, Christine and Michael Emerson, who's a delight to work with. And so it's just all, everybody on the show just feels like we're just having a good time. Even though we're making this very dark, sort of weird show, 
it's so fun and so it's like it's like weirdly absurd and also dark and horror and comedy it's kind of a, an amalgam of all of that which i love yeah. and, and that's what the kings do so well it's been it's been great and they've given me a nice um given me some nice fun stuff to do so it's been great and then i'm also producing would i lie to you with the kings which is also coming out on the cw which is the panel show oh nice yeah which we'll have you on at some point. It's basically, we're doing the American version of the British uh, panel show, Would I Lie to You? It's been on for 14 years yep. and we're doing it. It's basically just celebrities coming on and telling wacky stories and other celebrities trying to figure out if they're telling the truth or telling a lie. And it's just hilarious and super fun. And actually, I don't know, do you know Matt Walsh? Do you know Matt? Of course. Yes, of course. Yeah. So Matt is one of our team captains uh, with Sabrina Jalise as the other team captain. And we just had uh, the best time. And that comes oh, out in April 9th, next week. Oh, yeah. congratulations. I will definitely check that out. Yeah. Asif, we hadn't met before, but you are an amazing storyteller, as funny as I expected and deep and interesting. I appreciate you coming on so much and talking to me. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a, a pleasure spending however long we spent together. Yeah. <laughs> that was really fun. Thank you so much. This has been great. Asif, although we had never met until today, I feel like I've known you for years. <laughs> and maybe that was because I saw you in Oklahoma. But either way, it was an honor. Thank you so much for stopping by and talking to me. And thanks to you for tuning in. Don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And give us a follow over on Instagram at Off The Beat. I can't wait to see you back right here next week. Have a good one, everybody. Off the Beat is hosted and executive produced by me, Brian Baumgartner, alongside our executive producer, Ling Lee. Our producers are Diego Tapia, Liz Hayes, Emily Carr, and Hannah Harris. Our talent producer is Ryan Papa Zachary. Our theme song, Bubble and Squeak, performed by my great friend, Creed Bratton, and the episode was mixed by Seth Olansky. Notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.